Okay, I'm going to lead us in a prayer and then we'll continue. Gracious God, we are grateful for uh, the gifts that you have given us. Uh, we're thankful for this time that we can be here together this morning. We're thankful, God, for the way you've revealed yourself to us through your word. Uh, we're thankful for everybody in this room. Uh, we ask your blessings on us as we try to understand your will for us, uh, how we're supposed to work in this world to bring about your kingdom. Father, we ask for your grace and for your mercy. We pray for those that we just mentioned, and God, we're grateful for the community that we have here at Otter Creek. Uh, we pray that you bless our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Glad to be here. I feel like I barely made it today. I um, My husband's out of town, and I have three young children, so... I, like, if you had seen me 10 minutes ago, it wouldn't look like a Sunday school teacher kind of scene, you know, like the way I was, come on, let's go. <laughs> okay, so I'm trying to get in the, you know, good person mode. <laughs> let's look at um, Genesis 3 together. <clears throat> Especially, let's focus on verses 1 through 7 and then 14 through 19. Randall, I'm going to pick on you. If you'll read um, verses 1 through 7 for us. And then Mark, I'm going to pick on you. Verses 14 through 19, please. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, lest you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good food and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. And they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Thank you. The Lord said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, first for you above all livestock and all live animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. <coughs> to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. <coughs> Through painful toil you will eat it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Thank you. Okay, so <clears throat> we've got a lot to think about today. This is a big moment in the story. Um, what I want us to try to think about is maybe breaking it down into kind of two halves. One half being 
what happened when we fell, how did we, what, you know, what is sin, what is it like, and then the other is what are the consequences of that decision, that fall. Okay, so just a quick review. Um, what we talked about last time is that we are, um, it seems like the story that we have in Genesis shows us that we have a priestly role in, in the creation. Um, that includes a kind of expansionistic function, filling the earth with images of God's glory. That includes a co-creative function, um, subduing the chaos, the chaos that God leaves remnants of in the world um, with, with this, this idea that we talked about, that God created the world as very good, but not yet perfect. It was made to grow towards its perfection. Um, but God wants to partner with humanity. And that's a theme that we'll see over and over through this, the whole story, is that um, what God does when God creates and redeems and all of it is God wants to work with us. God doesn't want to just snap his fingers and make it happen, but God wants to work with us. Um, <clears throat> so that co-creating function is important. Also, we have a kind of managing or caring function. The languages have dominion, but we talked about that in terms of we're supposed to have the kind of dominion that God has, right? One that cares and shepherds, not just lords over and does whatever it wants. Okay, so what went wrong? What went wrong at the fall? Um, there's so much in these verses, and hopefully if you do have John Mark Hicks's book, um, you can refer to that as well. What I'm going to try to do is just present a lot of content, and then hopefully we'll have time to discuss. I hope George and Mark will, you know, kind of add their commentary, and then we'll, we'll see what we have time for. Um, and if we need more time next week to unpack some of this, we can do that, because this, this is a lot. But um, so a few things I'm going to, kind of ideas I'm going to put forth here. One of them is, um, what in the world is going on with the trees? Okay, this is a question a lot of people have. <laughs> what are we supposed to make of these? Um, there's a lot of debate about it, and it's, it's not something that's easy to solve. Okay, but um, one idea I think that we can work with, and it makes sense, especially in light of the way Israel understands this story over time, and the way we see these kind of, the, the images of the trees showing up later in scripture as well, okay? Um, I think um, what we can say is that this is something like, this resonates with something like the wisdom literature in Israel that we see, especially in Ecclesiastes, for example, right? Um, <clears throat> okay, so I'll give you, a, if you want to write this down, you can, you don't have to. Deuteronomy 1.39 references children is not yet knowing good from evil. 1 Kings 3.9 um, is a record of Solomon's prayer. Um, he's saying, I'm, I'm still a child. How am I supposed to lead these people? I don't yet know good from evil. God, give me wisdom. Wisdom to discern good from evil. Okay? Um, so what's interesting is this tree, this knowledge of good and evil, what that seems to symbolize is something you get with maturity, okay? Um, that it's not something Adam and Eve are ready for yet. There's a lot of debate here, so again, just kind of bear with me as we think through how this might work uh, in Scripture as a kind of trope. Um, we see the, the tree of um, wisdom, okay, this like the, the tree of life is a path to wisdom, we see this popping up as well. Um, if you look at Proverbs 3, um, 
The description here is about wisdom, what it's like. It's about, especially if you look at verses 5 through 7 in Proverbs 3, um, it's about leaning on God's wisdom and not your own. It's about listening to God's guidance and leaning not on your own understanding. And then that's explicitly called, wisdom is like a tree of life in verse 18. Okay? So um, the tree of life comes up again in Revelation 22. Uh, this is in, let's see, verse 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Okay, so it seems like what we have here <clears throat> is a choice between two paths. They can eat of the tree of life. They can pursue God's wisdom. If they want the knowledge that comes when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, that's not actually a bad thing to want, but you have to take it the right way. You have to go at that on God's terms. You have to be led into that knowledge by God. So it seems like they're grasping after something they're not ready for. Um, it's not that they, it seems like they're kind of childlike figures, okay? Um, that they aren't yet ready for that fruit. Because some people say, well, why did God put it there in the first place, right? Why is the tree even there? I think it's because that's what they're supposed to grow into. They're suppo they eventually would be able to eat of that tree, okay? Um, but Eve says, I want this sooner than God's planned it out for me. It's like, I'm going to get wisdom on my terms, um, and she's deceived in, in listening to the serpent in that regard. Um, so I think this is all part, this, this kind of fits with this idea that the world was kind of made with a telos. We use that term, that uh, a goal. It's made, it's oriented towards this goal of growing in its perfection, so to speak. Um, so are we. We're made with this possibility of growing into greater and greater God-likeness. But in order to do that, we have to lean on God's wisdom and not our own. Um, if we try to take hold of that wisdom on our own terms, we go down the path of folly, okay, which leads to death. Now, um, think about this in terms of rejecting our vocation as well. So we talked about how last week how when God created, God created the world as a temple. And um, as priests in the temple, we also are images of God. Um, we are made in the image of God. So the purpose that we have is to point creation to God um, to set creation in order as God would. But we're not supposed to do it, again, on our terms. We're not supposed to create images of ourselves. We're not supposed to say, this is our world and we get to do with it whatever we want. But that's what sin says, right? Sin says, I don't need God. I can do this myself. I don't have to look to God's wisdom. I can be wise on my own terms. Okay, so... Um, Feel free to raise questions about that, but I do kind of want to put a pin in that because I want to talk about the consequences and be sure we have time for everything that we need to say here because this, this is a little longer discussion. Okay, what I want to say is that the overall consequences God's speaking of in verses 14 through 19, what happens when we say no to our vocation, when we say no to imaging God, to leaning on God, the consequences are the disruption of shalom. Now, do y'all have some understanding of what shalom is, what I mean by that? What do I mean by that? What is shalom? What's that? Flourishing. Flourishing, yeah. What characterizes this kind of flourishing? What's that? 
Holistic peace. Holistic peace. I like that the word holistic is helpful because it reminds us to think about this in terms of not just our flourishing, but the flourishing of all, right? Uh, the flourishing of the created world, uh, neighbor-to-neighbor relationships, but also our relationship with God. This is all things existing in this kind of harmonious balance. This is all disrupted, okay? Um, so let's think about how this is disrupted. Uh, first of all, the ground is cursed, right? Um, there's also the serpent, which, you know, the, the serpent's a mysterious kind of being, um, and we can talk more about the serpent, but what's clear is there's, there's some sense in which the creation itself is subjected to some kind of curse, okay? Um, especially this idea of futility, right? Now when Adam labors, he's going to be this, have the sense of futility. Um, now, there was already work to be done in the garden. Adam and Eve were already tending it, keeping it, so there was some sort of cultivating work to be done, but now it's, a different, it's going to have a different kind of flavor to it, you might say, right? Um, it's going to, the creation will fight back, so to speak, with thorns. And the result is toil. Now, this is a really important word. Um, it comes up again in Genesis 5, 29, um, when we get to the, the Noah story, that um, people, Noah especially, is, uh, you know, wants rest from the toil, okay? Um, we shouldn't, again, confuse toil with work. Toil means something, something much worse than that. It means anxiety. It means pain. Angst is a, a word that we, you might kind of might resonate with you there. Um, this notion of by the sweat of your brow. This is an ancient Near Eastern idiom that indicates anxiety. Okay, so this is not the good kind of sweating that happens when you get out and do a lot of good work in your garden. This is this is like a kind of what is the purpose of my labor, right? Or Will, will this be enough? Or uh, that sense of why am I doing this, right? Like this seems like I'm just a hamster on a wheel just doing the same thing and there's no meaning to it, right? Um, <clears throat> this anxiety is also associated with the certainty of death. Now we will return to the ground and become dust, right? That's what it tells us. Um, it could be that we now, well, you know, some people say, well, it's interesting that Eve seems to know what she's, you know, what death is. She has some concept of that, uh, it seems like, when she and the serpent are having this discussion. So what did she think death was? Um, you know, some people, I mean, that's a debated point as well, okay? And um, some people suggest, well, maybe it was that um, the way that the creation experienced death was very different before than the way it did after the fall. Um, maybe it was that Adam and Eve's choice uh, in this regard was supposed to banish death from the creation. You know, there's, there's lots of, you know, there's these questions. What, the one thing that I think is certain that we can really, like, lean on when we look at these texts is that the way we experience death now is not God's will for the creation, okay? The way we have the anxiety unto death is, you know, the way these philosophers like to talk about it. Um, the way we experience death is this separation, um, not as, you know, there's a way in which we can, as Christians, we can really learn to understand death differently. And, you know, when you go to a, a funeral where someone has lived a long, wonderful life and you're celebrating that, that can be a, a sense of victory, right? There's this death as a passing over into God's other hand. But we also know how death doesn't feel that way. We also know lots of deaths that don't have that sense of uh, something to be celebrated, right? 
So now we live with this dread of death, might be a way to put it, as a kind of possible kind of ultimate separation from God. Another word is uh, the pain in childbearing. Okay, so I, I found this fascinating when I learned this for the first time. The word here for pain is the same one used for toil. Um, and so, uh, and, and the word for childbearing there is often uh, translated as conception. So, again, what seems to be indicated, sure, there's pain in childbearing, right? Literal pain, physical pain, but there's also anxiety. Anxiety in bringing children into the world, right? Like, it's just the, this childbearing process, which was supposed to be such a joyful thing about having more images of God in the world, now is a source of, I don't know what will become of this child. What is this, this child's future? What's it going to be, right? That question that you have. Um, and then there's the very fine verse about the woman's desire for her husband and that he will rule over her. <clears throat> okay, so there are three main schools of thought on this. Um, and again, I'm not going to try to resolve this. I just think it's interesting to know that the, the way scholars think about what it might mean. And they're reading intertextually and doing lots of, you know, the kind of fancy work that George and Mark do. Um, okay, so number one, um, some scholars think this means the woman desires the husband because that's what she needs for childbearing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, I would think, especially in that culture, um, that the woman's primary desire is for childbearing. She has to have a husband for that. Okay, and because she has that desire, the husband gets to rule over her. Okay, the other possibility, second one. This word comes up, this word desire comes up again later in Song of Solomon in a positive way. So some think it could be related to sexual desire. Um, especially, I think the arguments I've heard about this have to do, I would say, more so with, you might even put it in terms of carnal desire. Women have been seen, uh, for a long time, were seen as kind of more vulnerable to, to being driven by their kind of fleshly desires in general than men were. Uh, they were seen as more impulsive, more uh, kind of flesh-bound. Um, so I think that's interesting um, that there's a kind of tradition that grew out of that idea. And then the third one um, is the desire for control. Some people think this is about a desire for control. This comes because, again, this is kind of paralleling what we see in Genesis 4-7, where sin desires you. That's what God says to Cain. Sin desires you. It wants to dominate you. It wants to take control of you. Um, as someone who's married and knows the joys of, you know, doing life with another person, uh, option three makes sense to me. I know what it's like to want control and have to give up control and how the power struggle can happen. Um, but I, whatever it is, the man will dominate the woman is, is this consequence. And the point here is that that's not what God wants. That wasn't God's design for the creation, right? Uh, none of this was God's design. Now it's broken. There's this brokenness that we're, we're going to be dealing with. Okay, so <clears throat> to sum up, we have the disruption of shalom, a disrupted relationship with God, number one. Number two, disruption within the self. Now we have this self-loathing, this anxiety. Number three, uh, disruption of human community. Specifically here, between man and woman, right? But we see how this, this keeps going. We see this next, it happens between Cain and Abel. Eventually, the whole world is filled with violence and God decides to uncreate because of how violent it has gotten and start over, so to speak, with the flood. 
Okay, and then fourth, uh, disruption within the cosmos or the creation itself. Now the ground is cursed, right? But, thank God, uh, God does not give up on humanity. God pursues humanity out of the garden. Um, Adam and Eve have to leave the garden because, again, we have these kind of mysterious verses, right? If they stay here, they can eat of the tree of life and live forever. So they need to leave. They have to go. Um, I think John Mark says it like this is God kind of sending them out into the school of hard knocks, I think is how he, the way he puts it. Um, I do think we can see this. What, what's being communicated here is that this is a kind of grace God is giving us. Um, kind of like God gives Israel over to exile, right, to teach them what they've been longing for and where it leads them. There's a, it's a teaching moment. And it also keeps us from living forever, going down this spiral of uh, further and further away from God. Okay? Um, that's, that's one way I read it. It's one way I make sense of that. Um, but God goes with them out of the garden. I think that's such a beautiful image. And in fact, one of the first thing God, you know, first things God does for them is to make clothes for them. Uh, they experience shame. They feel vulnerable in their nakedness. It's it's fascinating. I think that God. One of the first things God says is, "Who told you you were naked?" Um, what you know, in some ways, I think we could hear there a kind of, "Who told you to be ashamed of your?" of how I created you. Who told you that this wasn't good enough, right? Um, which is, again, that's the lie that Satan gives, okay? But God goes with them, and there's still grace in the created world, even though it's fallen. Children are still born. <clears throat> we still have Enoch, who walks with God. Noah, who finds favor in God's sight. Abel. Uh, there's still God's sovereignty. God intervenes. God intervenes. Uh, we'll talk about new creation moments at the flood, and also at Babel, and then eventually, of course, by calling Israel, and, and then coming as the Messiah, right? So uh, I think this is such a heavy story, but we have to remember 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Praise God for that. Okay, I'll stop there. <coughs> all right, I'm going to be really brief here. Um, Lauren asked me and George to talk a little bit about this same, these same subjects, but perhaps from a New Testament perspective, <clears throat> which I think is great uh, because uh, Paul and Jesus have some things to say about this. Uh, quickly, John Mark, if you're reading that, uses the term instead of the fall of humanity. Anybody know what he says? Tumble. The tumble or the stumble uh, and then the tumble. All right? So... Um, I asked him, in fact, I asked him during church this morning. I texted him. He's in Ghana. Uh, and whenever you text Ghana, uh, John Mark, he'll usually get back to you pretty quickly. All right. So he told me, uh, just reminded me about the stumble. It is that humans um, are falling and continue to be falling. And so it's not like you're running and you fall and you face plant and you can't get up or whatever. <clears throat> 
it's like you're running too near the stairs, these long stairs, and you just fall and you tumble and you tumble, and it's a degenerating thing that just continues. All right, and so it just gets worse and worse. If you want to say fall, he says, uh, John Mark says, it's kind of like the fall away from Eden or whatever. There is a fall away from God. Anyhow, I like that language fine. I still kind of like fall just because it suggests fell from sort of that innocent and that close relationship with God, fell out of it. But none of that is, we're just uh, arguing about words there for the most part. So I want to um, talk just very quickly about uh, what Paul says about our sinfulness. Paul is, I think, the most pessimistic person in the Bible about what sin has done to us. In fact, it'll just depress you like mad if you read too much of Paul about what sin does. Uh, now, the, the uh, writers, the translators of the NIV, um, you know this term sinful nature? They use it all the time when Paul uses the term flesh because uh, uh, that's what they believe that the fall has done to us. It has given us all this sinful nature that we did not have before. And so Paul talks about this in chapter 7 of Romans. <clears throat> this this uh, chapter is a lot about the law, but you can single out <clears throat> um, a principle there that it's simply about knowing what God wants and not doing it. And the crazy thing is, Paul says, we can know very well what God wants and not be able to do it. It's not even possible for us to do it. Now, I do not believe for a second that Paul is talking about Paul the Christian here. We are given help. We do not have to live in that situation of not being able to do what we know is right. But listen to this just briefly in Romans 7. <clears throat> I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He's using this I. He's already talked about Israel. I think he's not talking about I, the uh, current Paul. Uh, I'm in 14, Romans 7, 14. I do not, now in 15, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate do. Uh, but what I hate, I do. <clears throat> and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Don't worry about that now. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I'm not doing this. Sin is doing this through me. It's not that I have sin. It's that sin has me. All right? Sin is this force that's even outside of us. Paul is going to talk about principalities and powers and all of the evil forces that control us. And those have come to indwell us unless we're indwelt by... The Spirit of God. That's his solution. We'll look at this later when we get to the important parts of the Bible in 80-ish days. All right? Uh, so, um, good itself, verse 18, does not dwell in me in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do, it's repetitive, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. He's not trying to get out of uh, being guilty, but it is not even me. It is sin living in me that does it. 
Now, I promise you when he says I, he does not mean Paul the Christian who is now guided, as he says in the very next chapter. He says, here's the solution. It is the Spirit of God living in me. Okay, so I think that's all pretty important. Now, just quickly about the consequence of sin entering into humans and what that did to the entire world. Yes, there was pain in childbirth and what you said, and the earth turned against Adam and made it very difficult. Uh, So the earth became a difficult place to live in. But I think it's much worse than that, and Paul sees that. And so he says in chapter 8, right here in Romans, verse uh, 18, verse 19, Sorry, 819. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope uh, that the creation will be liberated. Um, Verse 22. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. The earth is simply not working like it's supposed to. There is childhood death. There is disease. There are disasters the world over. There's droughts and earthquakes and floods and you name it. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. God's going to fix this someday. But this has what this is what has happened. And it's gotten in us and it's in our world and it's all just deteriorating the stumble the tumble just continues and that's what we're living with because of the power of sin in the world so sin has become this force that is it's not that nobody can do any good unless they have the spirit but they can't do good like they're supposed to and they cannot avoid it uh, this constant sin in life And just quickly to say another thing that I think, uh, another passage, a group of passages that I think suggest the same thing is, as Jesus is walking along preaching that the kingdom of God is coming, will be here soon. What are some of the evidences that he gives? He says the time's coming when um, there will be no more blindness. And so he heals the blind. They're not supposed to be like that. This is not anything that God wants. The lame are not supposed to be lame and sitting out begging. Um, the, uh, the lepers, they're not supposed to be lepers. God doesn't want that. I mean, leprosy was not only painful, uh, but it also caused such isolation. I think that's from other people. Uh, And that was probably even worse than the pain. So all of these things entered the world. And so we're waiting until God redeems it all. And so as we're uh, resurrected, the entire world will be resurrected. But that's what Adam and Eve brought into the world. And then it did. I think uh, this is a good idea. It just got worse and worse and degenerated. And so Paul's big, uh, God's big rescue plan. Jesus forgiven us of those sins and the Spirit giving us power to overcome them. It's nice to have sins forgiven, but we're still doing it. We're just destroying ourselves. 
and uh, each other. And so we have the spirit that I'll try to convince you uh, actually does something to us later on. <clears throat> I'm sure you're convinced. The problem is we all identified with what I was reading from Paul right there, right? I know what to do. I can't do it. Well, I'm saying he didn't write that for Christians. He thinks we can actually do better. But we'll talk about that later. I just have a quick question, and so you can you can both come up and respond to this. Uh, and the question is, I, I like what you said about the fear of death. It's not just death. It's that we're anxious about death, or it has some power that it didn't have before. But I, I, my question is, were we created, is the implication that they were created immortal and that death is a, a new thing? And you kind of said there's talk about what death means, but that's the question that comes to me because, it, you know, Romans 5.12, Paul says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So is Paul is Paul saying that we have death because of sin, or would they have died? Would there have been death without it? It's it's a debated point. It's a really highly debated point. Okay, um, I think one thing that I've learned, at least from like the more I've sat with this material and, and read more and more about it, is again I kind of find it interesting that sin and death go hand in hand so much, right? That death is like the consequence of sin. And especially when we think about that in terms of sin, in terms of um, the paths that lead to life and the paths that lead to death. So there's a way of flourishing and there's a way of perishing. Um, So I think the most helpful way, at least for me to think of this, is kind of what I was saying before. I don't necessarily know that I have to solve it. Um, were we made immortal and then now we physically die? Um, or is it because there was some sense in which we would have experienced death very differently? Or were Adam and Eve supposed to banish death from the creation? I mean, I think that's what C.S. Lewis thought. You know, there's this kind of... So I, but one thing is for sure is that we weren't supposed to experience it the way we do now. The way we experience it now <coughs> came into the world because of sin. So that, that's what helps me, because sometimes, you know, when you hear about the debates, you think, well, how am I supposed to live in light of this, right? Like, what does this tell me about what it means to be a disciple of, of Christ? So what I, what I find is I find hope in knowing when I feel that power in me, the power of death, the power of sin, that I, I have the power of the Spirit. I have the, the knowledge of resurrection. I have that. So I don't try, I guess maybe that's a, It might sound a little like a cop-out, but I don't try to resolve it necessarily. I don't know that there's a right answer. And I think it's a new way of thinking about the whole story that that may be a new way for for some of us, because I don't think I often thought about it this way, that we were created to be Mm godlike, and they were supposed to grow and become more and more godlike, and this this sin was that they did it too early. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just... That's just a new way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we? Are we supposed to be godlike? I think I mean, so. Like we're becoming gods, or no? I, you know, it would be um, it. It would be a mistake to say we're supposed to be gods, but we are supposed to be like God, and um, 
One of my favorite theologians is an early, early, early church father named Irenaeus. And he had this lovely way of framing this, I think, that because we are made as finite creatures and we serve an infinite God, we can infinitely grow in his likeness and still never be like him. So um, we have this infinite joy ahead of us of growing more and more like God, closer and closer into relationship with him. So to become God-like is not to become God. Um, but I think the more like God we are, the more we, we reflect him right? rather than just drawing attention away. Yeah. And I... My next question is about, it's from systematic theology, part that I never really understood very well, although I know the debate exists. How does Adam represent us? And, that, and this gets to the, like, when did it start being taught that, that we're born with Adam's, we're born guilty of Adam's sin? Is that, was that something that the church has held all along, or is that kind of a new factor because a lot of Christians believe that now. I mean, um, what, is, isn't that just what from Romans, right? It is from Romans, yeah. And it may be what Paul believed, but it's it's another one of those difficult things. I, I don't think that's what Paul meant is that we are guilty of Adam's sin. Okay. But we we do inherit it mm-hmm. uh, because sin is in the world, perhaps, and he you know introduced it or uh, at least. We've seen it and we like it. Uh, he, he was just the first. I do think this works with Romans. He is the first in that line. Uh, and Christ is the is the one that ends it. So, yeah. got old Adam where we are. However, mm-hmm. that works. Mm-hmm. And we've got new Adam come here with Christ. Who will eventually do away with the old Adam in us and its consequences. But are you, is, does that get at what you're asking or were you saying a little more like the, the idea of original sin yeah that whole idea yeah do we we don't have to do that do we and um like because 512 which which i read before says sin entered the world through one man death through sin and in this way death came to all people because all sin at least that's the way the niv translates that i know it's the greek's a little difficult there but because all sin so so I know there's different ideas about how Adam represents everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, my idea, my thought that makes sense to me, but that's from my own church background since we didn't really teach original sin, Mm -hmm. is that we, he's kind of an example of how we all sin. Yeah, Micah? I've heard uh, John Mark Hicks uh, express the view that's more common in the Eastern Orthodox Church which is not that we inherit guilt, but that um, Adam uh, basically catalyzed a world of corruption, which then corrupts all of our, our efforts. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not that we're born guilty or that we are being blamed for somebody else's actions. It's just that we are in this much more complex, corrupted world, and we partake of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I think... Uh, I don't believe that children are born guilty, but they are born into a world that is broken, that uh, it's inevitable that they're going to sin, right? That's sort of the way I think of that, and that's a helpful way of framing it. Can I ask something real quick? Yeah. About, um, <clears throat> when you talked about the, the 
the sin was that they were not mature enough. Mm -hmm. But if if I am not mature enough to know that I'm wise enough to eat of this, how how do I know when I'm wise enough to eat of this? Mm -hmm. I think um, the the question you're asking is one that people would say, is it fair? Right? It seems unfair, like that God would punish them for doing this. And I think. Um, it's helpful to reframe it as consequences rather than punishments, uh-huh. right? And I think the idea is if they had trusted, God had said, don't do this. Just trust that what God says, right? And we still have to trust what God says. I mean, this is something we're presented with all the time. And have to trust. Some There's some things we don't understand yet. Some things we're trying to understand as we grow. We have to trust that we'll get there. Um, I think the idea was that there would, there would probably come a time when God would say, now you're ready, right? They hadn't been told that yet. But see, even in making decisions, that just a normal part of life, it, it's hard to trust oh, yes. you know, my yeah. decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know we're about out of time, and you can use we're out of time if you don't want to answer the question. But. <laughs> <laughs> Something that occurred has occurred to me, and it occurred through our discussion at Otter Creek about the role of women and, and elders and that kind of thing. Because um, I agree, I see that that it's a consequence that he will rule over you is kind of not the way it was intended. Uh, but Paul seems to say, you know, the order of creation, Adam was created first, then Eve. So, do you see in the order of creation some is that where Men became the. In, in, is that is that meant to say they were in charge? I, you know the mm-hmm. question, because that would be prior to the fall, or is it just the fall that makes? So, yeah, that's a tough question. It is. I, I mean, so you're saying, um, is there something in the created order that like indicates that men are supposed to lead? Is yeah. that kind of the idea? Yeah. Um, I think that might be a. a we need to do a closer reading of that text and like what, what Paul's actually talking about there. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think um, one of the <clears> indications <throat> in that text, for example, is that Eve, you know, N.T. Wright makes this case, Eve should have had, uh, actually, part, one of the reasons why she was deceived is because she wasn't wise yet. So let's let women study and learn and grow so they can become wise in the ways of God. So there's a kind of appeal to the creation story to say that women are just as capable of theological discernment as men. Yeah. 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 So, but yeah, it'd have to be a longer conversation about no, the created that's, order. That's good. And it, it does say Adam was with her, you know. And so I, I, I want to know what was going on really there. Uh-huh, yeah. Adam was right there yeah. along. So why is Eve singled out? You know, yeah. Sometimes? And I, I should also say, I, I think it's okay to think of it's okay to say there are differences between men and women in the sense of, uh, like, let's say men are physically stronger, generally speaking, than women. So there's a kind of responsibility men have in light of that, a kind of that adheres to their more their stronger you know, physical strength. So I wouldn't want to say there are just no differences. I would say that, but we're all called to image God. We're all called to seek wisdom. We're all called to the same vocation in that regard. So, yeah, and then we could have, we'll get into the, most important book soon. And <laughs> we could have a longer conversation there. Yeah, and some people point out that if, if 
animals were created first and then people that the things created second sometimes aren't they're, they're kind of there's an improvement it's an improvement yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or an improvement you're improving on what you made prior. yeah 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 I can, I can see that. we are out of time but feel free to stick around if y'all want to talk more thanks so much